I love solar. I love this technology. I have loved this technology forever because at the root, there's still something magical about turning light into electricity. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I wanted to personally invite our listeners to our summer solstice party, which is on Thursday, June 20th from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at Hudson Hall in Jersey City, New Jersey. We'll be celebrating the summer solstice, which is the longest period of daylight, and our Solar Maverick podcast, which is one of the most popular podcasts for solar energy. I'm also one of the co-owners of the event venue, which is Hudson Hall, which is a Czech beer garden smokehouse. The cost to attend the event is $10 and light food will be served. You could learn more information about the Summer Solstice Party on the Renew Energy website, which is R-E-N-E-U Energy.com. Again, it's Renew Energy, R-E-N-E-U Energy.com. We look forward to meeting our listeners and Lee Wang, who's one of the co-hosts of the podcast and some of our guests will be there. And we look forward to seeing you there. We really appreciate your support of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you. Welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan. I'm really excited to have our guest today, Amanda Bybee. She's the CEO of Amicus O&M Cooperative. Amicus O&M Cooperative brings together a network of independent solar companies across the U.S. to provide operations, maintenance services for geographic distributed solar PV portfolios. And I think this is actually, you're the first person that we've had, other than Chris Grablitz from PV Pros in O&M and part of a cooperative to tackle this on a national basis. So I'm really excited, Amanda, to have you on the podcast. And I would like to thank Jesse Waters from PV Pros, who highly recommended you for the podcast. It's about our listeners and them recommending guests. And it was actually pretty funny to me, Amanda, because he called both of us on Saturday in Miami when he was at a bachelor party. It was like eight (laughs) standard time and we had this great idea for yeah. a podcast guest, and he was so excited he called me. And he I, was. Yes, I was out to dinner with my husband. Yes. <laughs> I so, said, oh, Jesse, that's a great idea. I have to go now. <laughs> yeah. But for him, at 8 p.m. on Saturday at a bachelor party in Miami, to think to, mm-hmm. that idea came, and for him to actually take the initiative and call, and he was so excited when he mentioned you as a potential guest. So thank you for making the time to be on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. It would be great to learn more about your background and about the cooperative. And it's amazing too. It seems like you have like maybe 14 years of experience in solar energy. It seems like you've been very passionate about it. And it would be great to hear what you're working with Amicus, the O&M cooperative, but then you're also involved in some other things as well. So I thought that would be a great way to start the podcast and the importance of O&M and these solar projects, which I'm sure will go further in as we discuss. Sure. I'm a chronological thinker myself. So maybe we'll start with the background and I can tell you my story and then we'll go from there into O&M. That sounds great. So I actually started working in solar back in 2003. 
So I think 16 years. You're a real veteran. In dog years, that's like 50 years. You're so you're ready to retire. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny to do a little name dropping. I met Jigger Shaw back in 2003 when he was just first peddling this idea of a PPA. Wow. Yeah, I met Dan Sugar. He came to Austin for a function and I got to chauffeur him around town from one meeting to the next, which at the time felt very below me. But... It also gave me Dan Sugar as a captive audience in the car, which was very cool. I got to pick his brain. That was back, I think, Powerlight days. Wow, that's amazing. How much time. That's an amazing story. I mean, it's interesting. These are people who are still doing significant amount of things in the industry and Mm -hmm. have left legacies as far as what they've done. And for you to have that exposure and kind of to see how things have transpired over time. Oh, yeah. At that time, I was working at a nonprofit organization in Austin called Public Citizen. And my boss at the time, Tom Smitty Smith, who is a legend in Texas environmental policy, hatched an idea to start a grassroots citizen-led campaign called the Solar Austin Campaign to encourage the municipally owned utility there, Austin Energy, to do more with renewable energy. And Austin Energy has a great reputation as a green utility to begin with. They also, at that time, were still sort of noodling on renewables. Mind you, this is 2003 when solar was still really expensive. And even so, they got the bug. And through, in part, our effort to encourage their city council and encourage the citizens of Austin, we were successful at helping them establish the first solar rebate program in the state of Texas, along with some pretty impressive renewable energy goals. So I got to be part of helping set up that first rebate program. And at that time, we were studying what SMUD was doing because there weren't very many other programs out sure. there just yet. Oh, so that's amazing to be able to be involved that early when there's really not really incentives and you're creating them from scratch in a rebate. That's amazing to kind of hear. Yeah, yeah. I think we learned a lot in that process. To its credit, Austin Energy conducted a very open and inclusive process. So I think I was in meetings once a week for six months trying to figure out all the rules of the program and how it was going to happen, what needed to be included on the initial application, like really high level of detail. Sure. From there, my husband and I took a brief jaunt to the Caribbean and didn't do anything related to solar. But when I came back, I took a position with Meridian Energy which was a very long-standing solar integrator in Texas and worked there for a time. So I got to taste what it was like to be on the installer side of the coin and not just on the policy side. And then we moved to Colorado in 2005, which was after the state of Colorado had passed its renewable portfolio standard, but before the rulemaking was complete. So I got here, had started meeting people in the industry. I rode my bicycle to the PUC one day for a hearing where I expected to meet everybody in the solar industry in one place and was actually quite surprised at how few solar installers spoke at that PUC hearing. But that is where I met Blake Jones, who is the co-founder of Namaste Solar. And Namaste at the time was just three people. It was the co-founders laying a lot of groundwork, planting a lot of seeds, They weren't ready to hire anybody because the programs hadn't begun yet. But I joined up with them in January of 2006 as a really early team member and was with Namaste Solar for 11 years. And during that time, of course, you do a lot of different things. Some of the more notable projects that I got to work on in 2011, we co-founded the Amicus Solar Cooperative, 
which is a purchasing cooperative that today has over 50 member companies throughout the U.S., Puerto Rico, and Canada. In 2014, we started working with several other companies through the Amicus Solar Network to charter a new federal credit union called the Clean Energy Credit Union. And this idea was in part an extension of the cooperative model that we had become pretty enamored with. Namaste Solar is an employee-owned cooperative. Amicus Solar is a purchasing cooperative. Credit unions are financial cooperatives. And when we first presented this idea to the National Credit Union Administration, which is the federal agency that oversees credit unions, they said, wait, let us get this straight. You want to just have these thematic loans and products? We don't understand. It's a very unusual business model in the financial services industry. But that was motivated in part from a desire to see more transparency in where financing comes from and to also make it more affordable through lower dealer's fees and things like that. So Clean Energy Credit Union is a going concern today. It's an online-only credit union that you can join by first becoming a member of the American Solar Energy Society. It has a pretty simple suite of services today, starting out simple, and then it will become adding more services as it goes. But it offers fully federally insured deposit options. You can open a savings account or buy a CD. And then on the lending side, you can get loans for solar electric systems, electric vehicles, and energy efficiency improvements to your home. That's amazing. Yeah. So I'm still involved with that effort as a volunteer on the supervisory committee, which is the internal audit committee of the credit union. But that's a really exciting one to me because for so many individuals who want to participate in the clean energy economy, or in the clean energy investment movement, they don't know how. And to really become involved in project finance, you need to have a lot of money and be a very sophisticated, accredited investor to understand the ins and outs of project finance. Through the credit union, anybody can open a savings account and have their $500 go to support other people installing solar or buying electric vehicles. And it's very low risk to them because it's fully federally insured. And so I just love that aspect of it, of really democratizing investment in clean energy. Sure. That's an amazing. I've never heard of, I know we talked about the clean energy credit union, but to really understand what you guys are doing, that's pretty amazing. And that I feel like not a lot of people know about and a great opportunity, but so many people, as you said, want to get involved with clean energy and they don't know how to. So that's an amazing company and products that are being offered. Yeah. So definitely, I think that this is an aspect of the industry that we can all participate in as employees of solar companies and as people who love this technology, the loan demand that they are experiencing is astronomical. There are more, way more loans in the pipeline than they can even fund at the moment. And so that would be the biggest need right now is to continue increasing the deposit base. Yes. So <laughs> an appeal to your listeners, <laughs> go to cleanenergycu.org and check it out. Yeah, definitely. And we'll also have it on the notes of the podcast as well. I think that's a great opportunity. And our listeners are mostly in the industry or are very interested in solar. So it just seems natural that they would want to be part of the cooperative. Absolutely. So then in 2016, another subset of member companies of Amicus Solar got to talking about their efforts to sell third-party O&M agreements. And in comparing notes about what they heard from clients, they realized that there was a fairly common set of issues or complaints that they were hearing. And they got to thinking, could we solve that by applying the cooperative model to operations and maintenance work? Some of those complaints were things like 
I'm not a general contractor. I don't want to be managing 10 different subs in 10 different states where my systems are located. That's very time consuming. I have to harass them to get their reports and keep them on track with things. I don't want to do that. Make this easier for me. And in other cases, both of these particular member companies were regional O&M service providers. They didn't have a national footprint of their own such that they could truly service a national portfolio. And so we hatched this idea to form the Amicus O&M Cooperative, and we submitted a grant application to the Department of Energy's Sunshot Initiative and received that award in September of 2016. And so that is what led to the founding of the Amicus O&M Cooperative. Congratulations. That's great. And can you talk about the funding through Sunshot and the Department of Energy, that, that whole process? Sure. Look into that. So it'd be great to get your perspective on that. Sure. Well, we were pretty green and naive as we walked into that process, not having ever administered a federal award before. So I certainly learned a lot in the year and a half that we were working with the DOE. And the Sunshot program is a really remarkable way for for-profit companies to get funding to advance these ideas, all in the with the intention of lowering the installed cost of solar. I think in many ways, they've announced that we've achieved the targets that they originally set. So I think we're on to a next generation goal for the DOE through these programs. And there is actually an effort right now to, or they've issued another funding opportunity announcement just in the last couple months so that the programs continue even in the current administration. And I would say that they're certainly of interest. They do come with a certain level of administrative requirements that folks should be aware of, but we are very grateful to the DOE for helping us get off the ground because through that program, we were able to obtain funding for the initial staff, aka me, (laughs) And to build out some of the tools for the cooperative, because one of the intentions of the O&M cooperative is to create greater standardization and consistency across the member companies. So none of them have a national footprint to be able to service systems, all with badged employees. In lieu of that, we tap into the network of the member companies that basically act as a pre-established network of subcontractors for each other. But because the cooperative has established this common framework, a common set of templates, and a common set of tools, if you are an asset owner and you have systems in 10 states, you could work with one single member company that would be your point of contact. They would manage all of the subcontractors. They would handle alerts management and dispatch. They aggregate the reporting back into a single consistent report and provide a single point of contact as you interface over issues or the health of the portfolio. And so the DOE award is what allowed us to create a lot of those tools and to configure a software ticketing system and to establish that level of standardization that we're trying to maintain. Sure. That's really helpful to know. And then I know you have a vetting process for the member companies. How does that work? Obviously, the quality of the O&M is really important. I'm just curious. I've read a little bit about it on your website, but it would be great to know. Yeah. So like you said, quality of the O&M is first and foremost. We are doing work on each other's behalf. And as anyone in the construction business knows, that is fraught with complications. So starting out and making sure that we have a high level of confidence in each of the member companies' capabilities is really important. Another thing that we look at is ensuring that we have good geographic coverage in markets where you see densities of solar. That's important because I think a large part of keeping O&M cost effective is trying to reduce travel time. So having 
technicians within proximity to these sites, ideally within two hours, so that you can get there and back in a reasonable time frame in the event of an emergency situation is really important. And through the vetting process, when we talk about geographic coverage, we also talk about trying to achieve appropriate levels of redundancy. I personally don't think it's a bad thing to have multiple member companies working in the same service area because that gives some backup in the event that company A can't get there as quickly as desired because they're predisposed. Company B may be able to pinch hit for them and at least get eyes onto a a problem quickly and be familiar with that common set of tools. Definitely. One of the other things that we have learned quite a lot about is how to operate within the bounds of antitrust law and trying to make sure that we always promote and encourage healthy competition even among member companies. So we certainly cannot and would not stifle competition within the cooperative, but we can also keep an eye on just how much overlap there is. Because I think if there was too much competition in a given area, that would not serve any of the members. So we do try to keep an eye on that as we evaluate how much saturation we have in a given region. Sure. Another thing we look for is what do the new companies bring to the table? How do they elevate the cooperative through new contributions or new skills or new tools? Another thing we look at is having an appropriate balance of what role they would play for the cooperative. We have an internal nomenclature that we use to describe the different roles companies play. All companies in the cooperative are what we call work companies. They directly employ technicians that go perform O&M field services. A fewer number of them also perform what we call sales companies roles, where these are the companies that are actively out there pursuing national portfolios. I think it would be disastrous to have every single company out there chasing national portfolios because that would result in a very uncomfortable level of competition. So we want to make sure we have the right balance of that because it's those sales companies who are ultimately going to help bring in revenue for all the other work companies. Sure, that makes sense. And then the last thing, which is really important to me and I think has been key to the successful growth of the Amicus Solar Cooperative as well as the Amicus O&M Cooperative, is making sure that we bring in companies that are values aligned with the others. And we have four values on behalf of the O&M Cooperative, the first of which is cooperation. I think that the O&M aspect of our industry is still very young. There's a lot of potential growth. There's a lot of need to establish best practices. There's a lot of changes taking place right now. So the willingness to share and the fundamental philosophy that you gain more by helping establish best practices with your partners than you would ever stand to lose. That's really important because understandably for a lot of business people, it's counterintuitive to share your practices. That starts to feel like you're giving (laughs) something away. You're losing your special sauce. (laughs) But I would submit that when we work together through the cooperative to elevate everyone's game, we all win. If you are a company that's out there selling L&M contracts and you're going to be subbing out the work to one of your fellow member companies, it behooves you to know that they are following best practices, that they're efficient, and that we can be cost competitive together. So that's a really key feature of the member companies is that they subscribe to this philosophy. Sure. Second value is reliability because just like we want our systems to be performing reliably, we need the contractors to perform reliably. To show up when they say they're going to show up, to turn around their deliverables in a timely fashion, all those good basics. We want people who subscribe to a fairness mentality. 
I will fight tooth and nail to make sure that there's enough margin in these contracts that everyone can make some money. The industry won't be sustainable if people can't make money doing this work. Yeah. So, And yet we also have to understand each other's perspective. We need to understand the perspective of the client who's trying to keep their costs as minimized as possible. And we want clients who understand that we need to make a little margin too. And so we want to have people who will approach these negotiations with fairness behind their words. And then the last thing is long-term thinking. We're trying to maintain systems that are going to last 25 plus years. We want to make sure that we have people who will put in the work and the thought process to approach the work efficiently, make sure the systems are performing as expected, and do so in a way that's going to be sustainable for the systems and the field and for the companies that are doing the work. Definitely. These are all great values to have for the cooperative. And I think you could actually come up with a better solution with the different O&M companies working together with coming up with standards and things, especially as you said, O&M and solar is relatively new. We don't have a lot of experience of long-lived assets and it's kind of been a learning process as well. Some things weren't constructed correctly or the O&M hasn't been up to par and it's been issues that we've seen in projects just because the experience wasn't there. So I think these are all great values to have for the cooperative and thank you for going through them. I also think that just like the rest of the solar industry, O&M services face a pretty intense downward price pressure right now. Definitely. So the name of the game is efficiency. And the more we can share our practices and share how we do things to keep time at a minimum, but problems also at a minimum. I think that's really where it's at. I've thought a lot about how do we position ourselves? How does O&M in general need to be performed? And really fundamentally, I see three reasons why people should care about doing O&M. One is, of course, to maintain safe sites. One is, of course, to maintain high performance And the other probably driving factor is to maintain warranties and make sure that we are keeping those intact to the extent that the OEMs are still in business. And yet, what value does a client derive from premium O&M services? Sure. If the system is performing and if it's safe and if the warranties are intact, I'm not sure that they really do derive a lot of value from a platinum O&M visit. Yes. Because I think that then you then just end up paying more for those premium services. So that's part of the balance point that we as an industry are still exploring is what is a satisfactory minimum? How do we price that minimum? What items can we push into an additional services bucket that are paid separately so that we don't incur a necessary cost until we need to? Sure. It's all some of the evolution of and the maturation of the O&M industry. Yeah, definitely. And it seemed like you're in most of the 50 states, not every state, but it seems like obviously in any state that there is solar, it it seems like you have a member company represented. Can you talk about the scale within the U.S.? Yeah. So we have 25 member companies today servicing systems in 38 states and Western Canada. And as you said, that covers the majority of states where you see a density of solar installed. We are still building out the network. I wouldn't say we're done recruiting new companies just yet. And as I also said earlier, I think that even once we have a company servicing a state, that's not to say that there's not still opportunity to add others because states like Texas are awful big. 
So having a company based in Austin doesn't necessarily mean that West Texas is well covered. Yeah, that's very helpful to know. And I know we talked about how you got funding. The Solar Maverick podcast is about entrepreneurship as well. What made you start the cooperative? Why did you want to focus on O&M? Obviously, Amicus focuses more on EPC. Can you talk more about what made you go this sort of route and also to start a cooperative? As well, it seems like you knew the cooperative model very well with Namaste and then Amicus, then Amicus, obviously O&M. And then we talked about the Clean Energy Credit Union. I know that's multiple questions in one, but I... That's all right. We'll we'll break them up. (laughs) Yeah. So why? Why did we start the cooperative? To me, when I think back, the founding member companies were Namaste Solar and Radiant Solar out of Georgia. Namaste is based out of Colorado, Radiant's in Georgia. And both of those companies have invested in creating a very robust O&M division within their EPC companies. And I think each of them were led down that path for multiple reasons, one of which is they've already got workmanship warranties that they need to honor for the EPC systems they've installed. And there is a certain level of just integrity that comes with that, that you want to make sure the systems you've installed will perform as intended for their lifetimes. So they've developed these O&M divisions. They've invested significant time and money and resources in making sure their techs are trained, they've got the right tools, and they're out there pursuing these agreements for both the systems they install and for third parties. They were the ones that were encountering issues about regional geographic coverage, as well as just clients wanting to simplify the process and have a streamlined point of contact. So that was really why we decided to put in the time and energy to starting the cooperative. I think, though, the question of why O&M is a little different. And for me, this really gets to this important part of my why. I love solar. I love this technology. I have loved this technology forever because at the root, there's still something magical about turning light into electricity. Definitely. That is just cool. I also feel very strongly that we need to meaningfully address climate change in our lifetimes. And I think that when you talk about climate change and its impacts on the world, it, it turns into a negative conversation pretty fast. But installing solar is something tangible that people can do. And it has a big impact on cleaning up our utilities and cleaning up our energy sources. So that's also just really encouraging and positive and tangible. But the other thing is that O&M is absolutely critical to the longevity of these systems and to our industry. I listened to a webinar yesterday and Stephanie Paget from Nautilus Solar had a really succinct way of putting it. ROI depends on O&M. Definitely. And I look at solar technicians as the white knights of our industry that ride in when something gets broken, they fix it, they get it back up and running, they fix these problems that could otherwise undermine the whole industry. If we want solar to be regarded as a reliable form of energy generation in perpetuity, it's got to be maintained. There's a lot of room for entrepreneurialism. There's a lot of room for growth and learning. And all of that really appeals to me at a personal level. That's the romanticized image of O&M, I would say. In reality, there's also a lot of pain in the ass, to be quite honest, because you're dealing with broken things quite often. (laughs) But for those of us who feel compelled to fix what is broken in the world, there is a joy in that. And there's something really intrinsically rewarding about making sure that these systems work. Definitely. And it's amazing to hear your passion when you talk about this and what got you in it. And it's amazing what people in solar, but specifically in O&M, 
are doing. So we thank you for everything you've done to kind of help create the framework, right? And then help with bringing the right people together and creating the right procedures to make it, to fix this issue that's in there in the industry and to make sure that projects are running without issues or problems or are getting fixed quickly and an efficient time frame or less costly. So. Yeah. Well, I'm just a bridge builder. I think the real heroes of O&M are the technicians. Yeah. Because they're also out there in all the elements and at night. And Definitely. Facing what is pretty hazardous work, because in, in many cases, you're working on live gear, is dangerous. dangerous. So yeah. I really venerate them because I think that they are the ones that are going to make the solar industry a permanent fixture in our energy landscape. I definitely agree with you. And it would be great to get your perspective as a CEO of O&M Cooperative of what trends you're seeing in O&M. I think there's just so many things that are changing in the solar industry, but then in O&M as well. Can you talk about maybe some trends that you're seeing in solar O&M? Yeah. I mentioned earlier the downward price pressure. When I started really studying O&M, I would say 2015, 2016, pricing was all over the place. And that was another frequent complaint I heard from asset owners. I go out to bid and I get prices. The range and pricing is just huge. How do I know what's any good? And I said, well, you don't really. (laughs) (laughs) Try it. But I would say over the last couple of years, the ranges have shrunk. And you still see some outliers, high or low. But I would say that we are starting to settle now on what does O&M work cost, at least for preventive maintenance. I think corrective maintenance when you need to go out and repairs, that's still a little bit more fuzzy math sometimes. I would say that it's a goal for us within the cooperative to really help people become more consistent in terms of the number of hours it takes to perform work. We look at the automotive industry and they have a book that they publish in the automotive industry that prescribes how many hours it should take to repair such and such part on such and such car. Yeah. That's how they make it consistent. So I think there's still work for us to do in terms of achieving that level of consistency across the board. There are a lot of technological advancements taking place right now. We've seen the rise of aerial and drone imaging over the last couple of years, which can reduce the scope of work for the technicians on the ground when they're doing preventive maintenance. What they can tell from up in the air is pretty dang cool. When you think about the fact that any fault in solar, any problem creates a thermal signature that you can detect with an IR camera. Wow, that's, just that's neat. amazing. Yeah. So when you fly a plane or a drone over a system before your preventive maintenance, you can pre-identify modules that have hotspots or strings that are down. And that allows you to be a lot more targeted in how you approach the work on site. Sure. I think that that advancement extends into smarter data management. We see better information coming off of the data acquisition systems and SCADA systems that allow us to do better remote diagnostics and cut down on truck rolls. So rolls are expensive. Labor and and actually physically going out to a site is hopefully a last resort. So the more intelligent we can be on the front end with our desktop diagnosis, the better we're going to be in terms of cost effectiveness. I also think there's a lot of potential for artificial intelligence to come into play here because solar is a technology that has a limited number of inputs and they can be mostly known ahead of time and by computer. Even the weather, we get pretty good 
weather inputs these days, especially if you have sensors on site, but also even from localized weather stations that meteorological sources are producing. And so that gives us the potential to continue getting smarter with the way that we manage systems. I think that there's still some very basic needs in terms of training more technicians. Nationwide, there is a labor shortage in qualified O&M technicians. And this is exacerbated by the strength of the construction industry in general, which has been attracting electricians over to conventional construction jobs. Something that we spend a lot of time talking about within the cooperative is how do we continue expanding the workforce to include more qualified technicians so that we're good at this work? So we do a lot of training. We talk quite a bit about how to make sure that we're spending our time in the right ways with training. Yeah. So those are some of the things that I think are basic. Those needs are going to persist for some time. We're not going to be able to successfully address the needs for good O&M techs overnight. It's going to take time. Definitely. And these are all great trends that you're seeing in the industry. And yeah, it's pretty unique sort of perspectives that I've actually never really heard before because you're obviously focused on O&M. So you see everything more on a high level. So that's just a really amazing perspective. So The other thing I'll say real quick is just I think it's so important to try to put on each other's hats. You know, I try to think about things from an asset owner's perspective and understand what they want out of a relationship with an O&M service provider. And then, of course, my day-to-day interactions are with O&M service providers. So I have a pretty good understanding of what it is they're looking for. But that's what I try to do is bridge those two interests so that we can find the common ground that allows us to really form good partnerships and take care of the systems that are out installed all over the U.S. Actually, that's a great point. Even though you're working with O&M providers, at the end of the day, those services are being sold to the asset owners. And you have to really think how they all think in their shoes, really, right? It's from their perspective. So that's great that you're doing that because a lot of people sometimes get stuck. It actually kind of reminds me of Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield. Mm. talks about to really understand someone is to be in their shoes and try to understand. And I think that's huge when you look at it from the perspective of the asset owner and how you could add value. It's interesting perspective because you mentioned the point of how do you value O&M services, whether that platinum package really makes sense. And asset owners going to try to get the highest value at the lowest cost. Mm -hmm. So these are interesting points that you're Mm -hmm. saying. I know I've been, Amanda, asking you a lot of different questions, but here's like that opportunity for you to ask me two questions. This is something that we've added recently to the podcast. and I love it. (laughs) So in your role as a developer, Benoit, I'm curious, how do you think about O&M and how do your clients think of O&M? Do you think about it just as far as putting in a number into your financial performa or do you help your clients really develop a plan for O&M? Sure. It's really about adding value to our clients. I think initially we just thought of it as a number in the spreadsheet and then figure out kind of high level estimates or budget costs when we create a pro forma for a project, then calculate what the inverter replacement would be year 10 to 13. (laughs) But what we've realized over time is that as more of these systems come online, that the EPC quality and also the O&M quality are huge as far as how successful financial these projects are. So what we've been helping as a developer with asset owners is 
basically educating them on the importance of O&M and then introducing them to parties that we think provide high-level O&M services based on talking to different people in the industry. And some of the companies that we refer them are actually part of the Amicus O&M Cooperative. Obviously, we get involved till like notice to proceed. We don't actually do the actual construction, but we do help with the solicitation or the RFP process of the EPC and the investor. And I'm excited because... Amanda, we're getting to know each other. And I think this is a huge part of it. And I feel like you could add a lot of value when we're kind of going through this process with asset owners. And what we're seeing too is a lot of new asset owners are coming into the industry, a lot of international companies, Mm -hmm. pension funds and insurance companies are investing in these projects. And they want to make sure they obviously have their returns. And what we're finding too is like, I'm sorry, I'm going into a different tangent, but returns are going lower and lower. So that means everything has to be more precise. And that includes obviously your production figures, but also what your O&M prices or estimates are going to be over the lifetime of the system. So So since we're on a tangent, can I ask a follow-up on that? Yes. Why do you think returns are going lower? Is it because incentives are decreasing? Because component prices are still very low. We had the tariff scare last year, but it seems to me that prices, at least for installed EPC prices, haven't fluctuated that much, even with tariff scare. So what's really driving ROI lower? I've heard of asset owners talking about this and of them extending the time over which they're trying to finance the projects in order to compensate for that. But I don't think I have a good understanding of what's driving that down. Only six or seven years ago, it was very hard to find investors for projects. There is basically a lot of good projects and not a lot of investors. But what's changed is people have gotten comfortable with solar as an asset Mm -hmm. and comfortable with investing in these projects. So we've seen a lot of investors come into the market that have a lower investment requirement than the traditional players that were here before. Private equity firms would have like a double digit sort of return when you're buying a COD and close to NTP project. But now we're seeing lower cost to capital, pension funds, insurance companies that have a lower sort of rate of return. And basically the sheer competition of so many more investors for these projects that basically that's lowering the returns for these projects. So I don't know if that answers your question. Because yes, you're right, the fundamentals haven't really changed. One thing I'll say is that we're seeing like the efficiencies of the panels increase substantially. You're able to get higher returns on the project because the panels are more efficient. Then obviously we're seeing more state-level policy that's allowing solar to be developed. Then there's things like community solar that's also increasing the development of projects and then companies with 100% renewable energy goals. So they're providing offsite power purchase agreements to incentivize the development. But we're seeing there's so much capital coming into the market and it's extremely competitive, Mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about projects that are close to being constructed. There are companies that are getting earlier stage of the development cycle to get those returns that they got before. Mm It's an interesting trend. I think it's certainly a welcome one to have the wealth of capital that we enjoy today. Uh, That is a distinct change from what it was five, six years ago when everybody was scrambling to find financiers. 
Oh, yeah. Financing has almost become a commodity, really, in a certain sense. And then it's interesting, as an industry, people seem very comfortable with tax equity, where before it took a while. So it's interesting to kind of see how quickly things are happening within the industry and how things are changing. And then, as you know, we're seeing now so many assets that have been in service for seven or 10 or 12 years. So now we're getting all this data, which obviously is helping us innovate and O&M and getting experience as well with doing all these projects and then coming up with the realistic sort of figures and numbers and costs. Because I think that's why you saw in the beginning a huge price differences on O&M just because people didn't really understand what the true cost was. Well, unfortunately, I would argue that we still don't. Yes. I read a statistic in a Sandia National Labs report not too long ago that said that 50% of installed solar has been installed in the last two years Wow! in the U.S. And I need to triangulate that and make sure I'm not perpetuating the wrong numbers. But that's an astonishing number. Yeah, that is astonishing. I think you're right, though. From- and some of the concerns that I've had in thinking about the decrease we've seen in module pricing over the last 10 years, which the module manufacturers deserve a huge pat on the back for being able to achieve those, and stay in business for the ones that have. And yet it also gives me some pause in just thinking about what they've had to do in order to achieve those cost decreases, which to some extent has to have been a function of reducing the materials that we put into modules. That's a good thing because we want to reduce, reuse, recycle, right? So the first step in that is reducing. But my question is, does that affect the longevity of the modules? And when you try to look for data on reliability, and you put it into the context of 50% of our solar has only been in place for two years, the answer is we don't know. We don't know what that's going to look like. And I think certainly if solar modules don't last their fully advertised 25-year lifespans, the, the manufacturers will be the ones backstopping that first and foremost. But these are things that I think about. And another topic that's very near and dear to my heart is, are we as an industry prepared for what to do with these modules when yeah. they do reach their end of life? And again, I would submit to you that we are not prepared as yeah, an industry. Yeah, we're definitely not prepared. Definitely not. We haven't thought about this. And there's some early efforts being conducted through SIA, through NREL, through different private groups that are trying to crack the nut of module recycling. But this is another one that comes at the end of life and that I don't think anyone is adequately budgeting for when they put, do you put any numbers in for decommissioning a system? So it's interesting. Some actually townships require you to provide decommissioning costs for the system life. And people don't know how to project what the decommissioning costs are going to be potentially 20, 25, 30 years from now. It's so hard to know. You just stick your finger in the air and hope you catch the right breeze. But it's a really important topic. And I've kind of pressed this point with certain folks and the answers that I typically get are things like, oh, we'll figure it out. We got a lot of time. And to that, I say, yeah, but what about modules that are damaged by extreme weather today? Where do they go? Yes. And there's the sad answer is that a lot of them are going to landfills. Oh, definitely. I want better for our industry. We were built on the back of an environmental ethic. We cannot landfill all of these modules. Oh, yeah. So we do have to crack the nut. I also am a big believer in human ingenuity and that when presented with a challenge, we will figure it out. So I think the solutions are out there and they're coming, but it's something that I feel a lot of urgency around because my guys are the last guys to touch those panels when they come off of a site. 
they need to know what to do with them. Definitely. I agree with you. These are all great points and it's, that's great perspective. And I totally agree with you. I think we'll figure it out. Definitely. No one's really unfortunately spent the time to really think about it, like recycling these panels, useful life. There are thankfully some very smart people who have been thinking about this. I have been diving into this topic a bit more of late and extremely grateful to discover that some big brains are working on this. And there are other parts of the world that are farther along, Europe, even China, than we are. So we'll be able to benefit from their leadership. But I think the United States is pretty accustomed to being in a leadership role. So if we want to reclaim that mantle, we need to get on it. Yeah, definitely. Well, this has been an amazing interview, Amanda. What's the best way people, if they wanted to learn more about Amicus O&M Cooperative or they wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? You know, we've made an effort to have the website tell our story in a straightforward fashion. So I would always start with the website, amicusom.com. And then to get in touch with me, they can reach out at abyb at amicusom.com. Great. Well, thank you again, Amanda. This has been a great interview. I'm really impressed with what you're doing and you're making a huge difference in the industry. I appreciate you taking a lead and all the work that you're doing. And it's amazing kind of hearing your passion and what you're thinking about and everything you're doing for this industry. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. And Thanks for the work that you're doing. I think through the podcast, you're able to give voice to some of the efforts that maybe go under the radar. And we appreciate that very much. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. It's been a a labor of love and a great experience. And I learn a lot, even through our interview, I've learned a lot. And this has been amazing. Thank you, Amanda. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. 